Well, this morning we are kicking off a new series as we are going to study the book of Ruth for the next number of weeks. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Ruth chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there are some in, in the middle of the room there. By all means, uh, you can grab one. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those. That's our gift to you. Uh, I like to encourage people to have a, a physical copy of their Bible. I know it's really easy to carry a few of them on this. Let me tell you, it is. But there's something, and even, even on your, your device, you can do this. But I invite you to bring a Bible so that you can highlight and circle and make notes. And I know in version you can bookmark and add notes. All these sorts of things so that we can continue to, to build on our knowledge and understanding over the years and, and see the journey that God has taken us as we've studied the Bible for, for days and weeks and months and years and years and years. So uh, we're in Ruth. It's uh, near the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. There we are, found it. And this morning we're going to start in chapter 1. So let me pray for us as we begin. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is God-breathed and Spirit-filled, and that it speaks loudly to us today as well. I pray that as we begin to dive into this story, that, that we would hear your voice through the story this morning. And we ask for these things by your grace and for your glory. Amen. Well, Ruth is a, is a short book, four chapters, but it is a story of rebellion, repentance, redemption, and restoration. And so in just four chapters, we're going to see this incredible narrative that actually mirrors our own story with God redeeming us as his people. So we're going to also see how, how human decisions can ultimately carry out the plans of God and also how Jesus shows up in the ordinary, everyday details of our lives. And what's good news about the story is that even though it is a story of rebellion, we're able to see that God is able to restore And even in the midst of the most dire situations, he is able to rebuild in ways that you and I uh, would probably never be able to imagine. And so as we enter this story this weekend, and we're going to spend a few weekends here, I hope that that we as well will be able able and willing to, to learn from this and to actually invite the Lord into those places in our lives where there is some brokenness where there are hurts and pains, the areas that, that need redemption, that need restoration. Because when we invite Jesus into those things, that's when he can start bringing hope and change for us. And so today, as we track through this book, we're going to see a few things in this first chapter. We're going to watch this family run away from God. Then we're going to see a repenting and a returning to God. And we're going to start to see God leading them through their emptiness towards restoration. So the first thing we are going to see is we're going to see this family running away from God. And as we jump into a new book, there's a a, a significant kind of uh, context work we have to do to make sure we're we're understanding what's all going on here. So uh, after the first service, my wife, who loves me very much, said, did you go long? And I said, no, I, I don't think so. I was like, man, it, it felt like you would talk forever, and we were only on verse 4, and I knew that it said 1 to 22, and I was like, we're going to be here all day. But, so bear with me. I love her. She loves me. She's good at keeping on point. But, but a, kind of a significant portion of our time will be in those first five verses. So don't measure how long I'm going by the progress of every verse is not going to get the same amount of time. All right? We'll just, just throw that out there. Let me read for us. <clears throat> Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Aphrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, this section is a setup for the whole book, so again, we do need to take a little bit closer look at it. And the first a significant hint for us of what's going on here is those first handful of words where the, the narrator says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now what's going on here, there's at least two things. We have something of a timestamp, so we can kind of plunk this narrative in history. The phrase tells us the book takes, takes place within the time of Judges, which is the book that comes right before it in our Bible. So we can understand that we're talking about probably the 12th or 13th century BC here. But even more than that, even more than the timestamp, the, the narrator here is making a theological statement about where the people of God are in their hearts. Now here at Trinity, we've just spent several weeks talking about the posture of our hearts before God. And now this narrator is giving us a, a glimpse into the hearts of Israel. Again, we're in, in Ruth, so this is Ruth 1.1 we're talking about right, right now. But if you look at the verse immediately preceding Ruth 1.1, it's Judges 21-25, at the end of the book, right before it. And it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so now, between Ruth 1-1 and Judges 21-25, we can start to piece together a pretty good picture of what's going on. We have some, some insight into the, the spiritual condition of the people. Now, if we're familiar with the narrative of the book Judges that's just come before Ruth here, where this is, is set, the book of Ruth is set, we know that the, the last judge was Samuel, and it doesn't wrap up well with him. He, he starts out good, but it gets really bad near the end. And so we kind of have this picture at the end of Judges of, of God saying, listen, I'm going to let you, let you kind of go your own way. I'm going to let you see what it looks like when you don't submit to me. And it's not going to go well for you. And so this time where Ruth takes place is a time of rebellion for the people of God. They had turned their back from God and started to look towards other false gods. Remember the story of God's people, how we got there from from Genesis till now. God had, had miraculously rescued them from slavery in Exodus. We read about that. They spent 40 years walking in the desert. And in my kind of own Bible reading time, I'm going through Exodus. And it is remarkable how many times the author of Exodus writes, and they grumbled against their God. They grumbled against their God. Like a chapter later, and they grumbled against God again. So they spent 40 years grumbling in the desert, yet perfectly provided for by their God. Then God brought them into the promised land the land of the Canaanites. They were told to, to, to take over the land. I'm giving you this. Slowly work on it, but take it over. But now they're in the land of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were people who, who worked the land. They were kind of a, a farmer or an agriculture society. Whereas Israel, Israel coming in had been more shepherds and builders from their time in Egypt as well. And so as Israel comes into this land, they need to start to learn how to become farmers. Because that's what you do here in this land. But in the context of the Canaanites, they 
weren't following the God of Israel. They weren't following Yahweh. Instead, they had two gods that they worshipped, the, the Baal or the Baal and Ashtaroth. And then in the land, they had these high places where they would go. They, they'd climb the hills so that they could be closer to their gods when they went to worship them. And Baal was uh, male and Ashtaroth was female. And these two were, were basically as well the gods of the harvest, or gods of the fertility of the land. And so the Canaanites believed that, that if these gods of fertility of the land could mate, the land would also produce and they would flourish. And so they believed that they would have to, they'd need to go up into these hills and, and engage in these high places in, in ritual sexual activity in an effort to show the gods what we need you to do to produce for the land. Because when they do that, when the gods do this, the land will flourish and then we will flourish. And so Israel walks into this context and they're not farmers. And so they just kind of think, well, that's what you have to do, I guess. So they followed in the ways of the Canaanites to try and be a part of that as well. They gave themselves over to that false worship. Whereas they had heard from God, follow me and I will bless your land, right? Something completely opposite. Now, I can see on some of your faces, and I did in the first service as well, that being 3,000 or so years removed from this, we're scratching our heads thinking, what were they thinking? That's, that's nuts. But before we criticize a culture that's not our own, we need to stop and ask ourselves, how many times have we stepped into a place, into a culture, and just done things because that's how we do it in Canmore. That's how we do it in Canada even if that maybe draws us and pulls us away from what God says. This is how we handle our money. This is how we handle work and property. This is how we handle gender and sexuality. Our hearts will often lead us away from from God's way to do something in the way that it just works in the land, in the culture around us. And that's what Israel is doing here. But again, God had told Israel earlier in Deuteronomy 27, 28, he said, there will be blessings if you follow me. I've shown myself powerful. I've done this for you. Follow me, submit to me, and you will be blessed. I will be your God and you will be my people. But if you rebel and go your own way and disobey, then the opposite of those blessings is those those curses where you are outside of my provision, you are outside of my care by your choice. And we read that one of those curses, God said, would be on the land. And the land wouldn't produce for them. It wouldn't be fertile. And so we come to this piece in Ruth and we get back there and we say, there's a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in another land, in the land of Moab. He took and his wife and his sons. We get the names of the family, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion. And names of people and places are really significant in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I, I would suggest that in many ways, names are still significant today. And so we, we need to wrestle with what some of these things mean. We're told that Elimelech and Naomi were from Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread. And so when we come to this text, we see there was a famine in the land, there's a famine in Bethlehem. We're reading, in the house of bread, there is no bread. Where there's supposed to be food, there is no food. And so what we're seeing is that in light of the pieces we've read before and what's come before in the Bible, we're seeing that, that God has, has brought this famine on the people, not just to punish him because he's vengeful, but to discipline them and to encourage them to return, to come back to him. One writer notes this. 
Anytime things aren't going well in our lives, sometimes it's the fault of another sin that you're experiencing the outcome of. Sometimes it's your own sin. But either way, in, in these times when things aren't going well, God is trying to get your attention and say, turn back to me. I can meet you in this. I can bring healing to your brokenness. I can bring restoration in a way that no one else can. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we can, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. He says, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so in a sense, in this passage, what we're reading is, is God shouting to Israel, repent, turn back to me. Don't keep running away from me, but run to me. I'm the one that can help you in and through all of this. And again, the, the people of God know this. Since they've been little, they, they've, they've heard the stories of, of the Exodus and coming into the land. And they've been told, listen, when we see the land go bad, the first thing we should do is examine ourselves and, and see if it's, if it's our fault, if there's sin in the camp, and turn back to him. They understood that when things were going bad, it, it might just be that God was trying to wake them up to their own rebellion and calling them back to himself so that they and we can experience his forgiveness and healing and restoration. And so when a famine hits the land, the people have a choice to make. And, and for them, it would have been quite clear. We've rebelled, so we can either run back to God, or we can run away from God. We see what this family decides in the story. The first thing each of us needs to wrestle with from this opening little bit is, when things go bad in my life, because they do, and if they're not right now, they will. Sorry to say. Do I run to God or do I blame God and run from God? And before you come back and say, Sean, I'm not a runner. I don't run at all. <laughs> Let me suggest that not doing anything, either not going to God or from God, is the same as you might as well be running away from God because you're saying, you know what, God, I don't need you. I'll figure my way through this on my own. And so I want, to think, want us to think about our lives right now. Whatever, whatever struggles we might currently be have, whatever they are, are you running in that thing to God or from God? And if not God, who are you running to? Or what are you running to to take the place of God? Again, to be clear, pain and suffering in our lives isn't always connected to our own personal sin. But it's always connected to sin somewhere. It, it might be ours. It might be someone else's that's, outwork, that's working itself out on us. Or it might just be the reality that we live in a broken and fallen and sinful world and everything about it has been affected by sin. But if this suffering and pain is connected to sin and rebellion against God, the only way we can find healing and restoration from it is to run back to him. And so again, we get back to our verses. What do Elimelech and Naomi do when there's a famine in the land? They run from God. And we, they, the, the book here tells us where they go. And we may not have caught at first. They, we were told they, they headed for Moab, which I've heard if you're a climber or a biker, that's not a bad thing to do in the summer. But this is a completely different Moab. This isn't just that, that they went somewhere else to try and carve out a better lives for themselves. This isn't like, well, things dried up in Canmore, so they moved to Radium or whatever, right? This, this, it's different. For an Israelite, Moab is probably the worst place they could go. The worst place they could head to. Again, just a quick history. 
Moab is a nation that's, a, that's descended from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Uh, later in the history, we read that, that Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel. We read about that in Numbers 22. And we know that, that uh, the people of Moab worship a god named Shamash, and they regularly uh, conduct or operate with human sacrifices to their gods. So this is just not, let's head down the street to find more fertile land. This is a complete run from everything Israel is. This is the, the worst place you could go as, a, as an Israelite. We also read in the, the books preceding Ruth that no Moabite could come into an, an Israelite place of worship. You couldn't worship their God even. They were so separate. Their conduct, their worship was, had separated them that much. And if you as an Israelite married off one of your kids to a Moabite, your entire family could now no longer worship the king of Israel, the, the God of Israel. Again, we, we read this in what's, what's come before Judges and Ruth. So this is a really bad place for an Israelite to run. It's not just, again, it's not just like Elimelech is trying to find a way, he's trying to be a good father, a good provider, and find some way to provide for his family, but rather for an Israelite to go to Moab, it's effectively saying, I am turning my back on my God and heading to theirs. I like how one pastor sort of summarizes the situation here. He says, see, the problem, though, is that, that Elimelech and Naomi, they misdiagnosed the problem. The problem wasn't they were in the wrong place. The problem wasn't that God can't provide for them. The problem was their sin. The problem was that Israel was in rebellion against God, and the tendency for all of us is, is not to stop and have God examine our hearts and see what might be wrong and where we've rebelled and gone our own way, but rather we just try to find a solution as fast as we can. I was um, traveling with another pastor the, the last couple of days, and, and we both had experiences in our histories of, of moving from one church to another, and both of us, when we were in kind of associate roles and a, and a lead pastor left, the church both quickly said, hey, you guys should slide into that lead role. Right? Like, that's easy. That's no problem. We've already got you here. Let's just change your title. Everything will be great. But that does not address the reasons that lead pastor left often, right? We like the easy, fast solution because then we don't have to deal with the junk underneath it. And that's what's happening here. The problem isn't that, is that it's our tendency not to have God examine our heart, but just find that quick solution. We don't want to slow down and say with the psalmist, God, search me, know me, see if there's any wicked way in me, and then lead me into the way that is life. And they didn't do that. They thought the problem was Bethlehem, so they ran away. And I think we often do the same thing, and our culture tells us we should do the same thing too, doesn't it? When things don't go our way, we, we blame something outside of us. If, just, if this thing was different, if, if I just had a different job, if I just have a different spouse, if I just had their kids, not mine, if I just had a different situation, different friends, if I just went to a different church, you know what, my relationship with God would be way better. Whatever it is, we blame the out there. And think if, if I just had that, everything would be good. But the problem is, there is no perfect any of that. Because everywhere we go, there are broken and hurting people. And so if we keep diagnosing the problem of being out there and not examining our own hearts, then we'll keep blaming something else and turning from God instead of turning to him and then being able to experience the, the healing and restoration that we're longing to. Now, again, ironically, Elimelech's name means, my God is king. 
And yet he abandons his God and runs to Moab to serve a different God and introduce himself to the people as my God is king. His name betrays his situation, doesn't it? Even though his name might say, my God is king, his life shows that his God is not king. I don't don't believe that because I am running from him. I'm running from my God. I'm running from my king. Which kind of brings us to the second thing that you and I need to wrestle with. Many of us uh, say that we're Christians and followers of Jesus, but the truth is so often our lives don't look anything different than the people around us. We might say Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, But functionally, either in parts of our lives or all of our lives, we live like we're the king. We're the queens. I like the language I've heard several people use in the last while. saying, Are we living as functional atheists? Either in our whole lives or in sections of our lives. God, I'll give you this. I'm going to handle this. Are we living as functional atheists? And if that's the case... We need to repent, again, if it's our whole lives, if it's parts of our lives, and run back to Jesus and ask God to change us. Now, Elimelech made a choice and had major ramifications for his family. He led his family away from God, and it doesn't go well for them in Moab, does it? We read that really quick. He dies, and now Naomi is left with a choice. Do I stay here or do I go back? But she also chooses to stay. And then her boys marry Moabite women, and now we've got a bigger long-term problem. Because now they're married to people who don't worship the God of Israel either. And for them, it gets worse before it gets better. We read that both boys die. And when we dig into their names, again, we could probably assume that it wasn't going to go too well for them. Malon means sickly. Chilion means coming to an end or about to die. And so there's this heaviness over even the family. But here's the beautiful thing about God. He has made it really clear what he expects out of us. Our God that we serve, the God of Israel, is not some distant mystery God that, that, that created the world, started things spinning, and then left a couple of clues for us, and hopefully we find him. But he's really clear. And this family knows, the people of Israel know what God expects of them and what God has done for them. And yet they've gone their own way and rebelled. We read the sons die and we read that Naomi was in Moab for 10 years before she decided she should return to God. And we read that in verse 6. She rose with her daughters-in-law and to return to the country of Moab. That return, that's, that's repentance. That's a, okay, I've, I've had enough. I'm going back. The Hebrew word shub here that's translated as return shows up 13 times in chapter 1. It shows up in English as, as the word return or, or go back or, or be brought back. And the repetition points us as readers to, to the theme of the whole story, to the theme of, of all of book. The whole point of Ruth is to return, to go back, to repent. But even more than that, whenever we find this same word in, in the Old Testament, Whenever we see it show up, it's connected with a going back, of course, but it's, it's always connected to God's covenant love and mercy for those who are coming back to him. And so one of the things that's a little bit lost in translation as we come out of Hebrew and into English is the constant repetition of return, 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 go back, go back, go back. But the Hebrew readers would have immediately picked this up, that God is pointing out over and over again, it's, it's time to come home. It's time to come back. Come back to, to his mercy, to the one who will forgive you, will restore you as you turn back to him. 
And as such, the story of Ruth is not just a, a nice tale of one family, but this story was meant to be one for all of Israel to tell themselves as they went forward and to remember. It was a story that they would hear over and over, and every kid would, would grow up hearing the story and saying, you know what, I know what happens when we go away. I've heard the story of Ruth. It's not good. But I also know what happens when I return. And God calls us to return, and it goes well. So the message of Ruth is to go back. The message is that we follow a God who doesn't respond with anger when we turn back either, but with mercy and grace. And we need to remember that. When we repent and come to God, he's not waiting angrily saying, I told you so. How could you make such a stupid decision? But he's a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of kindness. And sometimes we forget that as we start to turn and run away. But Paul reminds us of this as well in Romans 2, 4. He says it's, it's God's kindness to us that's intended to lead us towards repentance. And I think sometimes we have a distorted image of God, especially in this area, maybe based on how our parents disciplined us, or maybe especially how our, our relationship with our, our dad was, and maybe how our dads disciplined us. Which brings up another challenge for those of us who are parents. Does the way we're leading and disciplining our kids point them to God or not? When my kid does something he knows is wrong and he comes to me and brings it to me, do I get upset and say, how could you do this? Or do I say, thank you for confessing this. Jesus is big enough for that. Let's keep moving forward. Some of us as well are afraid to turn back to God because we have, we've misunderstood who he is and his character. Let's keep tracking. Look what happens. Naomi decides it's time to go back and look at why. We find out why it's time to go back in verse 6 too. Because she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Literally, the Lord had given them bread. So she hears that once again in the house of bread, there is bread. God is taking care of his people. So she says, okay, we're, it's time to go back. But as she gets up to go, notice she's not the best evangelist. She's not the best advocate for her God, is she? Verse 7 to 13. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and went on the way to return to, to Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return. Even, she says to them, Repent, go back your own way, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and, and dealt with the dead. And the Lord grant that you may find rest and each of you may, in your house may find a husband. She kissed them, they lifted up their voices and wept, and, she, and they said to her, No, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? This is a cultural thing that the, the younger son was supposed to marry the older, if, older's wife if he passed away. It's kind of a, an economic protection for women of the day. Which says, Turn back, daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to, have, to even have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughter, she says, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's saying to them, listen, there is no future for you if you stay with me. Go back to your families. Go back to your gods. Go back to your people. There's another little clue here that it, that it will ultimately end well for Naomi when she says, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. See, Naomi doesn't see that it's getting better yet, 
But she does see that, that her trials affect her daughter-in-laws too, that, that her sin affects the one she's connected to. And so the inverse will also be true. Verse 17, we read, And they, they lifted their voices up and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Literally, Ruth cleaved to her. Naomi's saying, I can't give you anything, just go. One writer says she, she puts a decision before these two ladies. She's essentially saying, I am completely empty. I have nothing, and I can give you nothing. If you come with me, all you have is me, my nothing, and my God. But if you go back to your home, if you stay with your people, you've got everything except my God. And we read that Orpah chooses to go home. She chooses everything but Naomi's God. But look at what Ruth says. Don't urge me to leave you, verse 16, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Ruth says, whatever the cost, I'm in. I'm with you. I want you. I want your people. I want your God. And even if it costs me everything I've known and everything around me here, I'm going with you. This is a good word for us too today because that's what Jesus calls us to, isn't it? Jesus doesn't come and say, follow me when it's convenient and it'll be easy. Jesus, when he calls the disciples, says, no, this will cost you everything. But he also promised that there is way more that we get from following Jesus, abundant life, blessed life, eternal life, than from going the other way. Sometimes we don't, when we, when we come to faith or, or start attending a church or whatever, we don't properly count the cost of discipleship. And then we're surprised when God calls us to sacrifice for others or to give up things we like for others or give up pleasures we enjoy for his sake. But it's always a better choice to have God and nothing else than to have everything and not God. And so what we kind of are witnessing in these verses here is actually a conversion story. Ruth's heart is changed. She's given up everything that makes her who she was to this point to follow the God of Israel. She's put everything she has, every hope she has in the God of Naomi, in the God of Israel. And so she has experienced a change from the inside out. Her heart has been changed and she's given up everything. And so Naomi and Ruth return we read they return empty-handed, which, by the way, is a really good way to come to God. And we read starting in verse 19. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but instead call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? See, this is a fascinating little scene. This is not just that, that Ruth and Naomi drove down Highway 1 and returned to big city Calgary and a couple of people noticed the car from 10 years before. But this is a small town. People, people recognize her and they would have known, the, you, you left us. You're coming back. Where are your sons? Where's your husband? And why do you have this Moabite woman 
on your tail. This would have been very confusing. They would have been asking for the story. We don't have how she recounts the story to them, but she would have told them the story of what's happened. The thing is, when they left, chances are Ruth and Elimelech were quite wealthy. They had the means to go somewhere else. And now she comes back with nothing, and the town is stirred up. All Naomi brings with her is her emptiness, she says. I've got nothing left. I'm hurting. I'm broken. I've lost my husband. I've lost my, my sons. She says, don't bother calling me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter instead, because that's what I am. And another little maybe side note that we can pull out of this text is this is another passage where we read that it is okay to be honest with God about our feelings and emotions. Last summer, we, we walked through the Psalms together and we saw this whole collection, you know, a third or, or more of the Psalms all talk about how we can lament to God and be honest and say, God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I alone in this? What have you done? And we have another little glimpse of that there to bring our real raw emotions to God because he's big enough to handle it. He dealt with whiners and complainers in the desert for 40 years. He can handle you and I today too. But look too at how Naomi still refers to God in this passage. Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara for who? The Almighty has dealt with me. The Almighty has brought this calamity upon me. In all that she's gone through, she still calls God sovereign, solid, and trustworthy. Even though everything's fallen apart for me, I still trust him and I still believe somehow, some way, shape, or form, there's a plan to all this. And so what we can learn from Naomi is that the way to come back to God, whenever we found, in whatever small ways we've turned our back and gone our own ways, is to come back honestly, so God, no, this, I'm, I'm still really upset about this, but I trust you. And to come empty-handed, recognizing that it's not our efforts that make us good to God, but it's all about him. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion and we're going to proclaim the Lord's coming, as Paul says. We're going to recognize that Jesus has come and done all the work and we are called to return to him. But just before we get there, kind of setting up the next few weeks, Imagine being Ruth at this moment. You've given up everything and you've come back to Bethlehem with Naomi and she steps into front of her people and says, I have nothing. And you're standing right beside her. What am I? In the coming weeks, we'll actually see that Naomi doesn't have nothing. Even though that's how she perceives it. She has Ruth. And we'll find that there are still some property rights that she holds. And God is going to work mightily through those things. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this story that that calls us uh, loudly, I think, and clearly to come back, to return to you. That you are faithful, you are strong, you, you want to save us and serve us, restore us, redeem us, make us whole again. I ask, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us right now and show us the ways that we're running away. The areas in our lives, maybe, that, that we have, have turned our back on you and are going our own way. Challenge us and convict us with those things. Thank you, God, for being a God that, that welcomes us back. So, God, 
of mercy and grace and compassion, slow to anger and rich in love. And we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.